details, see MeccaForPeace.org. If you use a wheelchair, call and we'll assist you. 510-548-0542. That's Aswat performing November 20th, 3 p.m., the Islamic Cultural Center, 1433 Madison Street, downtown Oakland. You're listening to KPFA or KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Richard Walensky. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. This is the second of a two-part interview with Susan Orlean, whose latest book is Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. Earlier books include Saturday Night, The Orchid Thief. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1992. There are seven books in all. She also has a blog on the New Yorker webpage called Free Range, which we'll talk about as well. Susan Orlean, in your research on the history of German shepherds. As you were reading about Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, you discovered a very, very, very perverse fact about the Third Reich and animal rights. Hitler, quite shockingly, spearheaded an enormous amount of animal rights legislation that the Nazi party put into effect in Germany. They were essentially the first nation to enact animal rights laws, which is about as perverse a notion as I've ever come across. You couldn't boil lobsters alive in water because it was cruel. And yet, of course, you could murder six million Jews and countless millions homosexuals and gypsies. I mean, the ability to hold these two thoughts in my mind at the same time was one of the more challenging parts of the reporting and it was absolutely fascinating one question i will frequently ask a writer is what did you discover that's most surprising or what was the most serendipitous moment but it appears susan orlean that the entire book was serendipitous and that every step was a surprise Having said that, was there anything even beyond that that just, as you say, gobsmacked you beyond anything else? I think the moment that actually stopped me in my tracks where I had to simply quit for the day and and let it settle in. I will say this as the end part of the sentence. I will begin by saying every step of the way, the whole motivation behind the book was this feeling of being astonished, being surprised, coming from a point of something that I thought was so familiar. I mean, Rin Tin Tin, it was my childhood. What could be surprising? I felt like I was constantly going, oh, my God, who knew? Who knew it was even a real dog? But the moment that stopped me dead in my tracks was after I'd done all this reporting about the Nazis' uh, obsession with animals and all of which left me staggered, was then stumbling onto an entry, a couple of entries, in Anne Frank's diary. She loved Rin Tin Tin, and she wrote about Rin Tin Tin in her diary. Her greatest dream was to have a dog just like Rin Tin Tin, and she would bring him to school with her, as she wrote. Her last birthday before she was killed in the camps, her wish for her birthday party was to see a Rin Tin Tin film. 
and Jews couldn't go to public places at that point. So her parents found a copy of Lighthouse by the Sea, one of Rintintin's silent films, and played it in their living room for Anne and her friends. And she wrote later about what a wonderful birthday it was. It just stopped me dead. The idea that this character, and I was convinced of this anyway, but the idea that this character somehow connected people around the world and people of a huge range of ages and and inclinations. I mean, what could be more vivid than the idea that both Adolf Hitler and Anne Frank loved Rintintin? Tin? And it was also just deeply sobering. Um, and to just imagine this young girl dreaming of this big, strong dog who would save you, because, of course, that was Rintintin's ace in the hole always, is that at the end of the day, he was going to be there and save you. And, of course, it, it was almost unbearable to read that entry and to feel the sadness about that loss of the innocent belief that something would always come in to save you. How did you find that? I mean, how did you know to look for it? I didn't. You know, it was so strange. I was trying to remember the other day how this happened. And I think what I did was I had just been educated to this. Google has a function where it will look for repeated words in all of the Google books that have been digitized. And my husband had said to me, oh, you should really look for Intentan. And I thought, well, I can't imagine that it's going to be anywhere that will surprise me. It will be in children's books. It will be in books about movies and so forth. But I thought, well, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll do it. And up pops Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. And I thought, whoa, this has to be a mistake. Because Rin Tin Tin means something in tag, Tagalog or uh, some Polynesian language. So... I got a lot of hits that were completely wrong. And I thought, wait, wait, this, she must have been writing about a tin can or some, There's this is a mistake. Well, Up it comes, and of course it's highlighted the way Google does it. It will f show you with highlights that word that you were searching for. And I, I just, my breath was knocked out. It, it was incredible. Since the book went to press... Is there anything that you found out that you go, oh, damn, too late? There were a few people who were very hard to track down, who lived and died in the pre-internet era, and they just left no trail. One of them, for instance, a man named Frank Barnes, who was the trainer who trained the dogs for the TV show. And he just left no trail. Uh, I mean, I looked and looked and looked and could not find a thing about him. Out of the blue, I got an email the other day through my website. Someone had read the book and said, I grew up across the street from Frank Barnes. I, when I was a young kid, I would come home from school, and Frank would send the dogs, Jr. and the other dogs who were on the show, out. They would practice fighting. You know, they'd knock me over and bite me, and it was all so much fun and so thrilling. And I just thought, oh, shoot, I wish I had known this. I mean, even just to have a little bit about Frank Barnes because he, he just was hard to find. So I've had a, a number of people who sent me pictures that they had in their own family albums when Rintintin came and made an appearance in Kansas City or Detroit or wherever, and they were photographed with him. And those are just 
fabulous to see. Susan Orlean, there's a lot toward the end about Lee Aker, the uh, the guy who played Rusty. I'm sure you tried to track him down and couldn't. He simply doesn't do interviews, and I found a couple of addresses that may have been accurate, but no longer. He he didn't respond to letters. He didn't seem to want to be interviewed, and it was frustrating because he's really the only person, uh, the only character of significance on the television show who's still alive. All the other main characters are gone. A few stuntmen, I interviewed a few stuntmen who are still alive. And he, of course, was very central to the show. He's had a bit of a weird life, and he simply doesn't make himself available. He had had, as I wrote about in the book, a very weird episode where somebody was impersonating him for years. So I also was not entirely sure that if I found him, I was sure, would be sure it was really Lee Aker. <laughs> it's a very, very odd saga of uh, a guy who just decided that's what he was going to do, was pose as the adult Lee Aker for reasons we will never totally understand, because he also passed away. But like a lot of child actors, he had a kind of hard landing after the show and left Hollywood and is a ski instructor uh, teaching kids with special needs how to ski. And in, in a way, I, I kind of admire that he's just led this other life and doesn't really want to be known forever and ever as the boy on Rin Tin Tin. Rin Tin Tin, for those of us of a certain age, we remember Rin Tin Tin watching it in the morning. For people in their 20s or 30s, do they even remember Rin Tin Tin? Your, your idea that somehow there's a certain immortality is there? There are a couple of answers to that. The show was rerun for years. Then there was something called Rintintin Canine Cop on Nickelodeon in the 80s. Then it dropped off and the dog exists as a real dog and puppies being bred, dogs being used as service dogs. So the name is intact, fan club, trademark. A film came out a couple of years ago called Finding Rin Tin Tin. Not a very good movie, but it, it came about. Do kids recognize the name? I notice a lot of times they confuse it with Tintin, and I usually gently correct them about that. But strangely, the name, they don't look at me blankly. There's some familiarity, whether it's that they heard their parents mention it or somehow in passing the name was familiar Quite often they'll say a dog, right? It's certainly not like anybody over the age of, say, 50 can definitely identify. I mean, absolutely. I have yet to run up against somebody who can't instantly say German Shepherd. And usually they also follow that by saying, yo, Rennie. It's like a, a, a complete reaction. Absolutely. Does he still exist? Well, I guess in a funny way, the book is a very meta experience because he does still exist. The idea that a book now has been written, that I discovered that the rights are still much in contention because there are a lot of people in Hollywood, even though it's been a dormant brand in Hollywood for a while, people in the entertainment world still view it as a viable idea and they still fight about it because the rights got kind of 
chopped up and diced and tossed around. I suppose if it serves its purpose, the book will plug in that hole of younger people who didn't experience it and don't come to the book out of nostalgia. And of course, it's not really a nostalgic book, but rather a book that's about an American icon, about popular culture, about uh, many things that don't presume a nostalgic connection to Rinton Tin. So maybe out of those readers are a number of people who will now be familiar with the character. You said in an interview, we're in a post-heroic period, but we seem to be moving past that. You really believe that? I'm not sure that we will ever be as accepting of a heroic figure as we were in 1920 and 1930, 1940. I just think the world will never be that world again, and that that's simply reality. I do think, though, that it's human nature to yearn to admire, to wish for a figure that's admirable, that has a heroic quality. That is human nature. I don't think we could live completely in a puddle of cynicism and doubt. I think you you want to believe that whether it's that you look at a news story, Chilean miners who managed to, I mean, that's not heroism in the same way, but I think people respond to the idea of endurance and integrity and overcoming odds and appreciate it. Will we ever look at a figure, you know, interesting look at the revival of uh, all the superhero movies, Superman, Spider-Man. I mean, those are aimed more at children, but a lot of people who are not kids enjoy the sensation of looking at a powerful figure. Well, I keep thinking about all of the people who went out for Obama in 2008. Of course, they were all disappointed, but they had that heroic... I mean, someone like me is a little more cynical. I didn't buy into it, and I'm less disappointed, but I think the heroic president who'll come in and save the day, it was there, but... Absolutely. I think that that is what I... More than anything, you know, that was going on as I was writing the book, and I did feel for the first time in my adulthood that belief, you know, where you drop a lot of your critical faculties and you just think everything will be good when this happens, when this election takes place. And here's a person who is human but is kind of extraordinary. And I feel like the emotion of rising to that felt great for a lot of people. It feels good to not feel cynical and to believe that certain things really can be good and can have integrity. I think cynicism comes out of wanting that and feeling that it may not happen. So if there is an ability at a moment to think, wow, that really could happen. Bravery, you know, people who responded after 9-11. You know, I grew up where every war was a big question mark and it was hard to look at soldiers and think they're heroic. I find more and more instances, Tim Hetherington, the documentary filmmaker who died recently and, you know, which was really tragic, but he had made an ex the extraordinary movie about 
troops in Afghanistan. And I thought, God, he's amazing. He, here's somebody who puts himself in tremendous danger to let us see the lives of people who are, you know, young guys and women in tough situations. And I thought he's, he, he seemed heroic to me. Of course, unfortunately, even more so because he died doing something so admirable. I like being able to admire people. It feels like a relief after growing up with so much irony and cynicism and skepticism. You're listening to an interview with Susan Orlean, whose latest book is Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. Susan Orlean, Animalish, is a Kindle single. Was that an article somewhere? No, that was an original essay. Kindle singles are short pieces available just on Kindle, um, and the length ranges from a couple thousand words up to probably 20 or so thousand words. So they're shorter than books, in many cases longer than a magazine piece, and an opportunity to publish something that wouldn't, there's no existing physical format to accommodate these pieces. And Kindle had approached me and asked me to write one, and it was a new form, and I thought, this is going to be kind of fun. Let me see what it's like to write. This was a sort of history of my life with animals. <laughs> it was really a lot of fun. It was different from a piece I would have necessarily written for The New Yorker, where I do most of my work. I'm fascinated by new forms and formats and gadgets and gizmos. So to me, it was pure pleasure. Uh, the friend of mine who loaned me her uh, copy for 14 days, <laughs> which is how it works, it was only under one condition. I had to ask you this question. How many of your readers are wildly jealous of the Valentine's Day that you talk about? Oh, my God. As a matter of fact, I have to tell you, my husband... For those of you who haven't read the Kindle single, my husband, when he was still my boyfriend, and we hadn't even been together that long, surprised me with a very elaborate, fabulously orchestrated Valentine's Day where he brought a six, I believe it was six-month-old lion to my apartment in Manhattan. Completely surprised me. This was my Valentine's Day. And it was just one of the more amazing experiences of my life. He even said, first of all, that in retrospect, every man he knew said to him, you've ruined it for us. Now our girlfriends and wives are saying, you haven't done anything like that for me for Valentine's Day. But more importantly, how can you top that? I mean, every Valentine's Day since then... I've kind of been waiting for a lion to show up. So you get a dozen roses and you think, well, that's really nice, but what about a lion? You know, what are you going to do after the lion? But it, it was amazing. It was absolutely phenomenal. And how many people have been jealous? Oh, my God. I don't, I, you know, I, it, it is an uncountable number. I have to say I had many, many friends who just said, oh, my God, oh, my God. And... I'd say, so how was your Valentine's Day? And there was a stony silence. So <laughs> it was pretty amazing. The most recent piece you wrote in The New Yorker was on Jean-Paul Gaultier. I mean, you, you take on these these jobs. Nobody assigns you. Do, do you see any kind of connection between Gaultier and Rin Tin Tin or The Orchid Thief? To begin with, 
the consistency in all of these is all of them have as their engine my curiosity. And while my interests are very eclectic, they're all driven out of some place in my mind where I thought, gee, I wonder what that's about. In the case of the um, Gaultier profile, his engagement with the world, his fascination and obsession and focus reminded me of so many of the other people I've enjoyed writing about who have a very singular identity that draws me in, that makes me wonder, okay, how how did you come to be that person? How did you choose to devote your life to Rinton Tin? How did you decide to make cultivating this rare kind of orchid your life? How did the idea of interpreting in fashion your unique view of the world come to be your life. So it is a single-mindedness in so many of these characters that attracts me, fascinates me, and it's usually something that I come to puzzled. I just want to understand how did that work? How did you make those choices? So they feel consistent to me. I wonder, those kinds of questions, did you, in your head, think those kinds of questions when you were spending time with Meryl Streep for adaptation? <laughs> it's funny, because I think her professional life is probably a lot like mine, which is, for a while, you are inhabiting a world that is not your world. For a while, you are Sophie in Sophie's Choice, or... Susan Orlean, the journalist, in adaptation. And it's got to be driven out of a curiosity to say, what would it be like in a totally different skin, in somebody else's totally different life from mine? You visit it, you get immersed in it, and then you come back out of it and move on. So you're sort of serially mon monogamous in terms of your focus. And then you dip into another life. So it really is very, very similar to what I do as a writer. You know, for the last eight years, it's been all German Shepherd all the time. Then, previous to that, it was orchids, 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 you know, and then I move on, and then I'm dug in deep into the next piece of the world that I'm trying to understand. Did you and she ever talk about that? We talked, she did not want to meet with me before the movie. She wanted to create the character out of her own sort of imagination, particularly because they were tweaking it from my actual personality enough that she just wanted to invent it out of her own instincts. We met and we've become friends and afterward, you know, laughed about the strangeness of her inhabiting my life. <laughs> particularly because I'm used to inhabiting other people's lives. It, it's a funny thing, and you're just completely in it. And in the case of an actor, sometimes even physically you're adapting it. In Meryl's case, it's the language, the accent. It's immersion journalism in its fullest flower, I think. I don't end up, you know, wearing German shepherd suits while I'm working on <laughs> Rinton Dent. As you were talking about that, I kept thinking of, you wrote a, uh, in your uh, blog, Free Range, you wrote kind of a, a tribute to the agent, Sue Mengers. You wrote an interesting comment. You said, the yearning to be near the thing that they can never be is like an open wound in describing Mengers and her relationship to Hollywood. And I keep thinking that on some level, 
that yearning you're taking in a different direction when writing this other thing about Menger's in a way you're writing something about you absolutely I think that that is why I was so haunted by my time with her she's a very likable person at the same time I was very moved and disturbed and also felt that I could understand maybe too well that impulse and it was really also like being reminded of what everybody feels as an adolescent in her case looking up at the popular kids and wanting at any cost to be around them and making herself useful to them so that she had a role in their world without ever having been the person who would have naturally been part of that world that vulnerability was so vivid to me I felt almost rocked by it in a in a really deep personal way I don't write about orchid collectors and think oh if only I could be one but I experience every time I do a story the feeling of being an outsider of feeling I I want to learn about your world and all of the awkwardness and and self-consciousness that comes with being the the person entering a world that is often very intact and there's lots of language and lingo and familiarity and you're the outsider and that's what my job is to be near these worlds that I'm interested in but always fighting that very primal feeling of oh I just want to go home and be with with the people who love me and not be the odd one standing right on the outside looking in with Sue Mengers that coupled with all of those feelings of these are the people who are beautiful and cool and rich and fantastic and she just loved the little bit of fairy dust that would drift off of them onto her and yet I think she always knew always felt in the, her heart that she was only there because she had made herself useful and not because she was naturally part of that world and I felt like it was a hurt in her soul that was just part of who she was she should have tried to be an actress do a Luella Parsons or Hedda Hopper and just jumped in yeah well I think that she probably toyed with that idea and then realized that she was very good at managing and being a handholder and a mother to stars and it made her very important and she was loved I I don't want to suggest that people didn't love her but it was in a very specific way and it came about for a specific reason it was not that she was naturally part of the world of stars she made herself part of it out of absolute determination and grit which was admirable but I felt like she felt that she had given away a part of herself that she would never get back Susan Orlean Rin Tin Tin took eight years do you have two or three other obsessions that you're slowly working your way through now you know book ideas come to me absolutely out of the blue usually I get sideswiped by one where one day I'm thinking there are no more book ideas in the world I'll never write another book and then the next day wham there it is and it's as if it had been sitting there in front of me and it's unavoidable 
I have one idea that I've been toying with a little, but um, I don't know enough about it yet to know if there's really a book or if it's just a terrific magazine story. But I also feel like a book is a marriage, and this book took me longer than most marriages last. <laughs> so you enter it, one should enter with some care because you, you do end up living with it for quite a while. You've been listening to the second part of a two-part interview with Susan Orlean, whose latest book is Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. Join the KPFA team for our largest, most exciting annual off-air event, the 41st Annual KPFA Crafts Fair. We need friendly, energetic, and reliable volunteers to help staff the doors and assist exhibitors and visitors at the fair. The hours we need assistance are from 10.30 a.m. until 9 p.m. on Friday, December 9th, on Saturday, December 10th, from 6.45 a.m. until 6 p.m., and on Sunday, December 11th, from 9.45 a.m. until 9.30 p.m. This event takes place at the concourse at 8th and Brannon in San Francisco, and it's a great opportunity to come to the Crafts Fair as KPFA's guest. If you'd like to pitch in and sign up for a shift, call Mickey at 510-848-6767, extension 629, or email volunteer at kpfa.org.